0: Welcome everyone, my name's Tom and this is the first of our instalments of Imperial Athletes in Conversation, a series of talks and workshops where we sit down with athletes, executives, authors and professors from the wide world of sport touch on loads of different subjects. With every talk there'll be an opportunity to ask questions at the end so if you've got any just put them in the Zoom chat or on our Instagram at Imperial Athletes and we'll go through those at the end. Our first guest has had a great career in the sport industry having worked as the Commercial Director of Manchester United Chief Executive of the ATP Tours in Europe and is now the Chief Executive of the British British Olympic Association. And um, thank you very much for joining us, Andy. How are you? Yeah, good.
1: Good. I'm very busy um, replanning for Tokyo, as you can imagine. It's a bit of a weird time for everyone involved in well any major sport at the moment. Yeah, but it's a busy time because you know the games are going to go ahead in July, and we're all trying to figure out exactly how.
0: Yeah, I bet. The fact that you've joined us today when you're so busy, we're really grateful. Thank you very much for coming. And um, just before we jump into your own bits, I really want to touch on your career and stuff. So you studied maths at the University of Oxford and yeah. obviously that being a STEM subject, I think a lot of our students do that as well. Did you take part in any sports clubs while you were there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been the most important thing in my life, which is why it's such a joy to work. So I played football for Oxford University um, for the Blues team. And that was back in the days when we used to play Cambridge at Wembley, so it was quite a big thing back then. Um, those days are sadly over, but you know, there was, we used to play and train five days a week. Um, and We had a full-time coach from the FA who worked with us, so it was quite serious back in, in the eighties. I played cricket as well for our college, but um, a little bit for the second eleven at the university. And I also played a lot of tennis, so uh, sports been very important. Now my obsession is cycling, which yeah. is um, you know spot on with the Olympics and one of the sports that we're best at in the world. So um, it's a nice thing to be involved with.
0: Yeah, no, uh, playing at Wembley sounds a lot different from what our students probably get a uh, pitch out of our grounds. But that sounds like a fantastic experience. I think obviously with Imperial being mainly STEM courses, I think there's a bit of a common misconception in sport that you have to have done a sport degree to get involved in it. Yeah. It'd be really valuable to hear how you kind of ended up in sport. Well, I think most sports organisations,
1: they're kind of, they're split in two in a way. There's the sports and performance side, and then there's the business and commercial side. Um, And those give you two very clear paths to go down from a career perspective. And the sports performance side, you're either an athlete, player, you know, member of a team, Or you're one of the backroom staff and there's a lot of medical staff, a lot of coaching staff, but increasingly a lot of sports science related stuff that goes on there. Now, I think in this country, we're very lucky to have some very strong sports science institutes. I mean, if you take a university like Loughborough, um, you know, it's the number one ranked sports science university in the world. And, and there are a lot of careers developing, evolving in that sports science area. Everything from, you know, the, the physiology side of it, the technical side, how do you make a bike or a boat go faster? You know, with the English Institute of Sport, which is our centre ex- of excellence in in the world of scientific advancement has been working with Adam Peaty, the swimmer, for example, um, over the last 12 months. I'm really um, enhancing his underwater stroke every time he turns and really maximizing his performance there. And that's all done by sports scientists. Yeah. On the commercial side, there's a lot of what you call general business jobs. And those of us who are lucky enough to start in one area of business and get into the sports world, they are classic business jobs. There's some very specific things to sports, especially around sponsorship, sales um, and the, on the commercial side. But there's also a lot of general business um, roles as well. And I think. Still today, doing the STEM subjects, getting into general business with those subjects in your on your CV is really important. You know, I, I used to I started my career in strategy consulting, which is quite a you know intellectual career, if you like, but very much focused on on people with mathematical and scientific skills and engineering skills. And and so I think with that background, you have some fantastic career opportunities, which ultimately give you the option to move into different industrial sectors. And if you, you, know, if sport, if you want sport to be one of the, your career, you've got to work really hard at networking to get into the sports world. So as I say, there are those two sides. It's the sports performance side or it's the business side. And if it's the business side, then you've got to work really hard to get into business, get the right skills, and then network your way into the sports industry.
0: Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw that you got headhunted by Manchester United. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So that was,
1: so I was at Disney in America. I worked for Disney in America um, on the business development and finance side of, for, for their consumer products division, which is massive. I and mean, we sold $7 billion worth of, of merchandise through, through shops wow. in America. So when you work for a brand like Disney, that's a big tick. It's like going to Imperial, right? I mean, it's, it's, Imperial's your first big tick on your CV, because it's one of the most highly recognised schools in the world, going to work for a company like Disney is kind of the next stage of that. If you've got that on your CV, you become more attractive to employees. And Manchester United were looking for someone with global commercial experience, and the fact I'd worked for Disney and I'd moved to Channel Four. Actually, I was head of strategy for the Channel Four Corporation, and those two things together—the the, the merchandise, the, the consumer products the media side of Channel 4 because I was there when we got Test Match Cricket rights and really changed yeah. the, the model of Test Match Cricket. The, those things combined made, meant I was somewhat attracted to the headhunters who were working for Manchester United and um, you know, I'm a lifelong Manchester United fan. My dad is, my granddad was. We're all, it's in the blood and to get a chance to come work there and be on the board was just an amazing experience. But yeah, it was because of the Disney thing really.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I presume when you were there, Man United had some pretty good times and not losing 2 1 to Sheffield United. But we'll. Well, well I think we've had. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. It was all going so well. <laughs> um, awesome. So, what do you think? Obviously, working the business side of sport, what do you enjoy most about that? Yeah, the variety. I mean, it, what's, it, what's amazing is. You know, if you take a normal office
1: job, you the, you, you do your job and, you're, you know, you go home on a weekend and that's it. In a sports world, you do your job and then you get to witness the sports happening and sit there and watch it and enjoy it and then go back and do your job afterwards. And so that makes it fun, whatever's happening. The variety, I mean, if you think about a sports business, the different elements, there's clearly the sports side that I've alluded to, the performance side. You know, in a football club, that's the team, that's the academy, that's working with the manager of the club, etc. Um, on the business side, you've got a media business, usually um, very focused now on digital media, social media, but TV rights as well. You've got a commercial side of sponsorship sales. You've got things like consumer products. So, you know, we take Manchester United, we're selling football shirts all around the world every day, and a lot of other products that go alongside that. So, and then taking the team on tour overseas, so at the beginning of every season, we take the the team to either Asia or America and do some fantastic work with that. There's usually a community element to it. So, you know, the Manchester United Foundation, we've got the British Olympic Foundation where you're doing projects in the community that can make a real difference, have a social impact. So all those things come together in a sports business that just mean it's, it's full of variety and honestly, for the last 20 years, I don't feel like I've been working. It's such a mixture of fun and work that if sports your passion, then to work in the sports industry actually doesn't get any better than that. It was the same in the media industry, actually. I had people I worked with whose obsession was television and making television programs and being involved with that. And they had that same passion. For me, that was always sports. So although I love Channel 4, to get a chance to go and work in the sports industry was, was better and has proven to be the best thing that ever happened to me.
0: You mentioned working with the managers and stuff. What was it like working with Sir Alex Ferguson or being with him on a day to day basis? Obviously- yeah, fantastic. I mean, the, he's focused, right? The first thing you would say about him is kind of obsessed and
1: focused about, about delivering success. Um, but he manages to create such a brilliant atmosphere of everyone working around him and for him and within the team, of everyone sort of working to the same tune, dancing to the same rhythm um, in an incredible way. And he could be equally charming or very aggressive, you know, and he would turn things on and off in order to get get the maximum maximum effect. I only once heard him... um, Using the hairdryer treatment, which is after a game we lost away at Celtic in the Champions League. And you know, you heard how, how angry he could be at that point. But in general, he was just incredibly focused. And one of the things that always amazed me when I used to go have lunch in Carrington, which was the training ground for United, um, and meet various people there, you know, for business reasons. And everyone was so well Behaved so focused, so committed. The young kids were the most polite kids. They were all taught to behave like adults from a very young age and to behave in a certain way. And he just created a culture. And that culture was the Manchester United culture. And that's what's quite interesting now with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being back at Manchester United. He knows and has embraced that culture. And, and to some extent, that's helped him get a long way down the path of becoming a good man and just having worked with Alex Ferguson. He certainly knows about leadership. He's definitely, had he. Well, I think what's most impressive about him was he had to adapt his style over the years. But there's definitely a culture shift in what coaches and managers are allowed to do and how they behave. And he managed to adapt over a period of 20 years how he behaved and he modernized himself, he modernized the team, he modernized his approaches. And we seen that in a lot of sports, you know, there's lots of issues in, in Olympic related sports around bullying cultures, for example, at the moment. And what was acceptable twenty years ago in terms of you know tougher coaches, more aggressive coaches, is no longer acceptable. And people are having to adapt. And we have seen that play out in the world of the Olympics at the moment. He kind of adapted as we went along, and he changed changed his behaviour and changed his way of operating. And I think that was really impressive for someone who was from you know a tough environment in Glasgow to to actually adapt and become a, a modern you know iconic coach.
0: Yeah, definitely, it's one of the. Greatest, will probably be the greatest football manager. And I'm not a Man United fan. Yeah, without a doubt. There's no probably
1: amount <laughs> <laughs> of
0: so I think we'll just move on a bit towards the Olympics stuff. And obviously, you said Tokyo pushed back a year. That must have been logistically, financially, a nightmare, work wise. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: never happened before. So there was no, there's no blueprint to go to. And when you run the British Olympic Association, we, we work on a four year cycle we have nine major events that we take athletes to over that four-year cycle. So obviously, the Summer Olympic Games is the pinnacle. The Winter Olympic Games is probably the second thing in that pecking order. The um, European Games, you have the Youth Olympic Games, the Youth Winter Olympic Games, you have the Youth um, European Youth Olympic Festival, European Winter Youth Olympic Festivals. So there's a, there's a range of things you do, but it really all builds up to that Summer Olympics. And the whole organisation is is just focused and laser focused on delivering that to the best of, of our abilities. And just so you all to understand the, the, the setup that we have around Olympic Games in Tokyo, we have a preparation camp So and that has a few elements. We have a, a relationship with one of the top universities in Tokyo called KO University for using their facilities in the build-up to the Olympic Games. We have a diving and swimming pool in, in the city of Yokohama We have an amazing athletic stadium called Todoroki Stadium in in the city of Kawasaki. Uh, And those three elements, along with the hotel where everyone stays, make up our prep camp. And that's a big logistical place, right? You've got 380 athletes going into there and then going on to either the Olympic Village or to their venue where, where they're competing. That's the first bit. Then when the athletes are in the village and in competition, we have a, a, what we call a performance lodge where they, we take them out of the village so they've got more focused training resources and more analytical capability. And that's right next to the Olympic Village in a, in a high school or an intermediate school in Tokyo. So that's the next uh, component. Then within the village, we set up an environment. We always try and get extra room um, over and above what we normally get so that we can have ice baths, for example, inside the Olympic Village so that athletes can recuperate. Then on the commercial side we have something called TGB house which is a massive stakeholder venue for vip travelers for um, commercial partners for athletes after they've competed and that's another component so you've got all that going on so 380 athletes our party is about a thousand people in general so you can imagine it's a major um, operation logistically the transportation logistics um, all the operational stuff that goes around there, all focused on making the athletes able to compete to the best of their ability, uh, and so that's what we obsess about—is creating the perfect environment for the athletes. When the games is cancelled, all of a sudden, you know, we've spent 15 million quid on on the Summer Olympics, and you've got all that cost allocated to all those different components, and all of a sudden, you've got to say, "Hell, we don't want to lose any of that." We've got to move it into the next year um, without losing any money. We also have, we're totally commercially funded. Um, much of our revenue comes through sponsorship. And we've got to, we got—we had to focus on not losing any of our sponsors because some of them were clearly totally getting very nervous. They committed their, their funds through the Olympic Games in July. So our mission last year was to save all our sponsorship deals and have as little sunk cost as we possibly could. And we managed to do that. The, the organization went into a, a mode on teams um, last spring and, and summer of read. We did 850 contracts, I think, legal contracts that so we had to renegotiate. And we managed to do that to get everything in place for this summer. Um, We lost one sponsor along the way, um, a bank called Starling Bank who just decided to pull out the day the games were postponed. Everyone else has stayed with us and been amazing. I mean, the support we've had from our commercial partners, people like Adidas, like Aldi, DFS, the the retail Dreams, retail, Purple bricks. you may have seen them advertising on television. They've just stayed with us and been absolutely incredibly supportive. And on the cost side, you know Ko University, the support we've had in Tokyo from the university, the school, our our Team GB house menu has been incredible as well. So coming together, everyone, to make you know to to help us in our mission to to save our finances basically was incredible and we've achieved it. We now are focused on the games happening in July and everything we're hearing from the IOC, from TOCOG, the organising committee from the Japanese government is that the games are going to go ahead and we're all now working on exactly how they're going to go
0: ahead. Awesome. I think, especially in the last 10-12 years, the Team GB brands expanded quite a lot. I think what you've just mentioned about sponsorship staying is a real testament to the work that's been done on that I mean, yeah, the brand, is, the brand has been, I mean, I, I've been
1: lucky enough to inherit that, right? I mean, it's a bit like going to Manchester United where the brand exists already. They've done such a good job with the Team TV brand. And mostly thanks to the athletes. Again, I mean, we had some amazing digital media stuff this summer. Um, on TikTok, we had a bunch of athletes doing something called the Isolation Games where they were kind of doing Olympic events in their back gardens and stuff. And it was the second most viewed thing on TikTok, Last year, which is amazing success, and that's all thanks to the athletes. and I think what's great about the TGB athletes is that they're usually incredibly humble. Right, they're not million, multi-millionaire footballers. They're people who are who are doing this for an absolute passion. They don't get paid anywhere near what the footballers get paid, and and they give everything to it. And I think the public know and acknowledge that and, and therefore embrace them in an amazing way. And some of the athletes just did an incredible job. I mean, I, I hate singling people out. but people like Max Whitlock, the gymnast, just does an amazing job for Team GB. He's such a brilliant guy. And and everything he does online, people just embrace it because he's such a decent person. And there's, there's loads of him, people like him and loads of examples of people doing that. I mean, the Taekwondo women jay jones and bianca walton have done some incredible stuff for us and you just look at that and think okay i understand why the public would embrace the team do rebrand because it's, it's it's authentic and that does give us the chance even yesterday in the most trying of times we we heard some really good news that we've got a, a new sponsor um through to paris which is just incredible right now no one's selling a sponsorship deal but it's a real deal at the moment but it's a testament to the strength of the brand and the and the athletes
0: yeah, I, I remember seeing some of the the hockey guys doing that TikTok thing last lockdown. Yeah. It looked yeah. One yeah, of the hockey players actually. Yeah. Was, yeah, Probably guess which one as well. <laughs> um obviously, before your CEO, you're in point CEO, you are on the board of the British Association. How's kind of the whole preparation? What's changed in these eight ten years that you've been working at Team GB? It's interesting. I came on the board
1: just before London, and a home Olympics is very different than a, an overseas Olympics in a way. And certainly, commercially, the, the BOA had to give up all its rights to low the London Organising Committee. Um, but I think what happened in London is there was a big learning curve about if you could, we had more control of our environment in London because it's our own city. Yeah. So I think, in terms of the preparation, the performance assistance during the games, we managed to create a, a sort of perfect environment for the athletes in London. And I think therefore our mission in Rio and in Tokyo has been to take the London environment and make it happen overseas, which had always been very difficult. And that requires a lot more money. I mean that's the reality is you can do it, but you need a lot of money. The only people who've been able to do that, create that kind of environment in the past were the Americans. So by becoming more commercially successful, we've been able to, ourselves to have uh, the opportunity to build better environments for the athletes that were based on London. So I think, you know, in Rio, there was an obsession about beating the the London medal hall because yeah. it's never been done before and you never had a home that everyone does over, it, you know, overachieves at home Olympics, but they don't overachieve in the following one usually. But our medal hole went up to 67 medals in, in um, Rio, which was amazing. And that was because you know, A, the sports were well-funded and the sports were doing an amazing job but also the, um, the environment in Rio was really good and the whole preparation centre in, in Belo Horizonte was amazing. And we've now managed to replicate that in Tokyo. But Tokyo's going to be a tougher game. I mean, the medal issue, will it, it may be less of an issue given everything that's going on in the world, but it's going to be a really tough environment because the Japanese have been spending a fortune on, on their sports and the Chinese the same. It's just becoming more competitive. Yeah. Which is good, right? I mean, that's good and to be encouraged, but then we've got to keep upping our game as well as a, as a system.
0: I no, definitely. Um, Owen slots in his book, The Lab, describes kind of Olympic preparation as an arms race. What, would you agree with that? <laughs> I, I
1: don't know where he's coming from. I don't like to use a sort of military analogy <laughs> for sport, because it's a different end of the spectrum. But I think... There are certain sports where, you know, we talked about Adam Peet in Loughborough University and, and the work he's doing there. The EIS, which is the English Institute of Sport, which is, has some amazing scientists in there. The work they do on the bike for each Olympic Games, you know, making the track bike as aero as it possibly can be and as, as competitive. That, that kind of spend, it keeps happening, keeps improving. And I think we've seen over the last cycle, the Dutch, the Danish, the Germans, the Australians have been spending a lot of money on their bikes and, and trying to replicate what we've done in the UK. So staying ahead is a challenge, right? It's always going to be a challenge. So, so that's what he's alluding to. Same in rowing. Um, and I guess same for individual athletes. You know, If you take the Adam Peaty thing, he's not going to be the only guy in the world trying to improve his his swimming stroke to improve his time and enhance his performance. So yeah, times are getting better, and and you know you see it in running as well in the marathon running and how much improvement there has been there uh, through and how it, the the Nike shoe in particular seems to have had an impact. So the development is is fascinating. But you know, for for you guys coming from Imperial scientists, that's good news, right? I mean, it's it's. It's um, it's the fun bit of, of sports development. And you know, the companies like Adidas and Nike who I've been looking to work very closely with in my career, they have some amazing people developing products and developing new 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 systems. And we've got some the, one of the biggest challenges there's gonna be in Japan, which everyone's now forgotten about, is that it's gonna be very, very hot and humid and heat management is a major issue for athletes. And the, before the games last year, we'd had our triathletes competing in Tokyo in the heat. And we learned so much about how to regulate the triathletes' body temperature so they could perform to their best. And all of that learning from triathlon was then going to be applied to you know, other endurance sports so that we could, we could have a performance advantage. And that's fun. I mean, that is really exciting, and it does add a, another dimension to the Olympic sports.
0: Definitely, you mentioned other people spending a lot on um, Olympic preparation, and obviously GB's put more in the Olympic prep over the last few years. Got a little stat that I found, <laughs> okay. because I've seen a lot saying that GB does spend money, but they spend it more wisely. And for okay. Rio in 2014, GB outspent Australia, but like, this could be completely wrong. And you could just. Hit me with it. <laughs> Outspent Australia by 37%, but put, outperformed them in the medal table by 131 I think, how does GB go about allocating funds to be much more efficient than other countries? Yeah, it's interesting, very pertinent to the moment, actually. The, so, to
1: go back to 1996, and most of you were probably not born, I guess, sadly for me. Um, we went to Atlanta for the Olympic Games, which was an awful Olympic Games. It was just basically delivered to Coca Cola, and it was, a, it was just a poor game. But we only won one gold medal in, in Atlanta, which was Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson. And that was a disaster, right? The whole nation was, was kind of um, humiliated at that point. And that's when the National Lottery came along and the national lottery funding for, you know, sports, culture, and the arts, um, that process was established. At the same time, UK Sport was set up to be the distributor of lottery funding. So UK Sport is a government agency we work very closely with, um, and they, are, they get money from the government and from the lottery, and they distribute it to the sports in a very focused way. Now, since 1996... Until Rio, well, until now, actually, it's always been done on the basis of medal potential. So if you take a sport like Cycling, where I think I did win 10 or 11 medals at the last game, they, they will get a disproportionate amount of funding because they have got more medal success. Now, that meant the system was very ruthless. And you may have followed, but sport, like Basketball got no funding because we had no chance of winning a medal. There was no money given to basketball, and there's a big outcry about it. And what their argument was that we'll never win a medal if you don't fund us. Surely you've got to fund the potential and and development and longer term goals as well. And I think there's sports like badminton massively had their funding reduced because they've not been delivering medals. So so the system was incredibly focused and was definitely delivering success. And I think that is why, if you go back to London and Rio, the spend was the, the the return on your investment was incredibly high, and and it was very effective. But it did create quite an interesting system that was you could argue had too much of a focus on medals and not enough focus on athlete welfare, for example. And I think we're seeing now with various stories, for example in gymnastics, where a number of the athletes have been saying the environment was too obsessive, it was too grueling, it was it was bullying. That we've had to change the thinking. And right now, I think UK sport is going through a bit of a transition period where it's got to change. Not necessarily stop obsessing about winning medals, but the story is now about winning medals in the right way. And also, they've just announced around the funding where they have put more money into some of those sports that have longer-term development requirements rather than just an immediate return in medals. So... You may, uh, I don't know, you may see a bit of a dilution on that return that you're talking about. So the return on investment in Rio was clearly maximised, but along with that came some issues around athlete welfare and the environment within which athletes were training. So I think we're now seeing a more strategic, longer-term view of investments in sports. Maybe that comes with a bit of a dip, who knows, we'll we'll see. But hopefully longer-term, it's a more effective and productive and Athlete-friendly way of investing, and and so so that's a fascinating thing to watch as the next few years unfold. But without doubt, in Rio, you'd say we maximised our return on investment. It, it was amazing. I mean, I was there for a couple of weeks, and and at the end, we were just winning so many medals. It was you kind of lost track of what was happening and what wasn't. I mean, it was it was it, was, it must be what the Americans are like every every cycle. But it was it was quite amazing. I've only been to one gymnastics event in my life, and I saw three medals. Um, you know, two numbers, in, one, in one session I mean it's just never happened before so yeah so we were definitely effective but equally I think people like Australia are a good example they kind of set the way in the 90s and early 2000s for sports investment with the development of their sports academy and and then other people learned from them and then other people started surpassing them in terms of how they were spending. Australia now has been hurt by the last Olympic Games and is now reinvesting and regrowing and redeveloping and you're seeing other sport countries, say like Holland, in particular Denmark, Germany, really investing in a more focused way again. So, it's, it's going to be a moving feast and a changing pitch
0: but it's definitely not getting any less, any less competitive, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I think speaking of Australian stuff rebuilding, we've kind of gone through that now we're on the up, aren't we? Do you think, obviously, the aims for Tokyo, We've Team GB have improved their medal returns since Atlanta pretty much just yeah. going up. Do you think it's realistic to aim to go again?
1: Yeah. We're not. It's interesting. As an organisation, we don't have a medal target. We just focus on creating the best environments. UK sport do have a medal target. Um, it's interesting that the the companies that do the targets externally have got us coming down quite a long way from sixty seven to forty on medals Except at the moment. And Rio as well, though. so we're not much different than where they were saying going into Rio. And one of our things is we believe that the environment we create around the athletes um, creates you know medal winning opportunities that wouldn't exist otherwise. And, and so. Yeah, we we are forecast by the external agencies to come in below the the, the Rio target. But well, let's see. I mean, it's it's well, the big unknown actually this time is is the COVID um, rules and regulations and what that means. Because you know we are trying to make sure the environment is as safe and secure as possible. There's going to be a big issue around athlete vaccination leading into the games, and we're all trying to figure that out at the moment. We clearly. It's fascinating. We cannot jump the queue, right? Young athletes cannot get vaccinated before the elderly, the vulnerable. Um, That much is clear. But we're hoping there will come an opportunity probably May time when athletes can be vaccinated along with the general population. that's important, but also the testing regime, the safety regime, enabling our athletes to train in a, in the build-up to the games in a safe and, and secure environment, and our prep camp allows us to do that, may give us a, you know, a relative advantage because we are trying to manage this environment as well as we can. But it's really difficult. The unknowns around the COVID testing and um, protocols at the moment make it very difficult to plan exactly how the environment's going to look.
0: Yeah, no, it's... It all sounds very interesting, and intricate, all the strategy and logistics yeah. of it. And um, we're going to move on to some questions from the people watching now. If that's all right, yeah, with you, Andy. that's fine. Yeah. Um, so I don't have names of who these are from, but we'll go. how do you see the sport industry changing in the future, kind of with aim representatives and women in leadership? Yeah,
1: it's a big issue. Actually, the um, the sports industry has not today done a great job of diverse, uh, you know, embracing diversity at the senior management levels and it's something that clearly needs to change and I'd say the good news is now that certainly the Olympic sports, but in sports in general there's an understanding that there's an issue we now need to start proactively addressing the issue in the right way and it's interesting, so I'm uh, on a couple of boards other than the BOA, and we're, when we're recruiting, we are, and in both those boards right now, we have got senior level recruitment processes going on, and we, in both cases, we, be, we are being very focused to make sure that the lists that we're getting to interview represent the, the population in terms of diversity. So it's beginning to happen. We're a long way from, I'd say, um, achieving what people need to achieve. In the Olympic sports, there's there's better female representation at board level than in most industries. So I think our board at the BOA is split 50-50 um, male-female, which is good. And there's a lot of senior women in, in the Olympic world, um, in the UK especially. The BAME representation is poor at board level. Uh, I can't say anything other than that. I mean, it's just not good. We're not too bad at the BOA. <laughs> but I think that's more just a... Um, maybe a quirk of fate and good judgment. We, we we just have to take this more seriously, and I think the BAME community, especially, we need to do a lot more to get members applying for jobs and 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 getting them into more senior roles within organisations. You know, if you look at some of our sports, the actual athlete representation is very is very positive, and we have very strong BAME representation. We've got to get some of those ex-athletes into into proper careers once they've finished competing and then getting them board level and senior management roles. But it's definitely an issue that people are aware of. And, and it starts. I mean, you talked about headhunters. It starts in many cases with headhunters having lists that are properly diverse. And a lot of the headhunters are quite lazy. You know, as a white 50-something-year-old male who's worked for age in the sports industry, I get called about every job that comes up in the sports industry because it's the easiest thing to do it's up to us when we're recruiting to make those headhunters work much harder to ensure that there is proper diversity. So so it's a great question. It's something we're very aware of, but there's a long, long way to go.
0: Yeah, I one that. And obviously you've worked with some great leaders in sport and stuff. What do you think makes a great leader or what do you see in common when working with these uh, people in management positions? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a few things.
1: Um, And... I think I probably appreciate different skills than other people might appreciate. But the first thing is absolute focus, right? I, I think you've got to know what your ultimate goal is and then be obsessive about that. And I, and I think, you know, I was fortunate to, as Chief Executive of the ATP Tennis Tour, to see Roger Federer close up, right? And he is laser focused on, on winning Grand Slams. Right, so everything else is kind of second to that. And he's laser-focused, and every, everyone around him, everyone, you know, his, his performance team, his medical team, they're all laser-focused on delivering him in the best possible shape for the Grand Slams. And you see, so, you know, although he's not leading an organization or a team, he's leading his own performance and his entourage to to achieve success. Alex Bergson absolutely laser-focused on continual success. When you read his autobiography and you see, you know, the day United won a league title, they're not really celebrating, they're focusing on the next league title. I mean, so that laser focus is, is good. But the other skill that I would always put up there that's really important is emotional intelligence, high EQ that really understanding what motivates other people and how you get the best out of other people, not being self-obsessed, but being obsessed about what motivates other people who are around you. And that's true in all business. In my view, that is the biggest number one factor that makes successful leaders in, in business as well, is really trying to embrace you know, other people's, um, getting the best out of other people by understanding what motivates them and what makes them tick. And those two things together are helpful. And then, you know, it does help having the finances and resources to make sure you can invest in the best possible environment. You know, when United put Carrington in place as, as their training venue, it was the best training venue around at the time. Now that's been surpassed by Manchester City. I mean, their training facility in, in um, Manchester is just incredible. And, and so that kind of investment also helps. So you do need money and facilities and technology to help you succeed more in sport. But I, you know, if you say that later focus, emotional intelligence, and then you know, investing in the best possible way to support the sports performance environment, then those things are, are, are combined, give you a potential for great results.
0: Cool. I think you touched on this one a bit earlier about funding for athletes through medals. And do you think it should be linked to medals, or do you think that it hinders the development of sports? I know you touched on it quite extensively earlier, but yeah, it's a fine. But I think
1: we should not lose the focus on medals because ultimately. You know, I've not met many athletes who don't want to be successful in any sport that I've worked in, that they want to be successful. And when you see athletes who don't want to be successful, I'll use an extreme version of Tommy, the Australian tennis player. It's almost, you've got all this talent and you're not going to put it to, you know, to use to try and win things. What's the point? So, but I've not met many athletes like that. I have to say most of them want to win. So I think it's fine to be focused on medals and success. But I do think that the two elements need to support that. Are one is we have to create cultures and environments where athletes feel like they have a voice and if something is not right, that they are absolutely able to go and make their, their feelings known without fear of repercussion. And you know the worst example of what happened with the US gymnastics story with, with the you know, abusive doctor, and I think what's horrible for everyone, is that that abuse was going on during the London Olympic Games. You know, and that is a terrible story where the young gymnasts didn't feel that they had anyone to go and report to or talk to, and that can't be right. So, you know, that's one extreme and that's horrific. We need to make sure though, that the culture and the environment around athletes allows them the opportunity to speak to to third parties and make their feelings known if they have genuine concerns, and that the, the environment becomes more nurturing, for want of a better word. So, so I think that's important. And I do think that it's right to invest in sports long term, that leaving sports in the wilderness is not the right way to do it. And, you know, if you take a sport like basketball, I do think it's important to invest in a sport like basketball. And, and that's a great example of one where the people who want to play basketball quite often come from poorer inner cities and, you know, they deserve the best chance to get into basketball if that's the sport they want to choose. I, so, and then not investing in basketball then means it's a second-rate sport. It doesn't get any attention, and and those guys who want to play it who follow the NBA um, don't get the opportunity. So, I do think you need to mix the, the three. So, I think focus on winning medals is the right focus, but not at any cost. It's got to be medals in the right way. Creating a culture that allows athletes to feel they're listened to and heard, and that the issues can be addressed very quickly before they become major issues. Um, And then and then having a long term strategic development focus alongside your your immediate medal return. Those three things are the balance that you've got to strike. Now that sounds great with words, but it's not not easy. When you've got limited resources, you know, in real terms the spending on on Olympic sports is coming down probably slightly over the next few years. So we need to we need to be very clear about how we balance the the spending and investment. And that's what UK sports, you know, struggle with all the time.
0: Yeah, I I think I agree the culture in a safe environment, any team, I think one of the most important things when you start looking into it and realise the success behind it and another question from one of the viewers how can athletes make themselves more commercially appealing to companies when looking for sponsorship when hoping to become a full-time athlete when not on funding or programmes yet?
1: Great question
0: it's a a good question the the social
1: digital um, media platforms have given athletes a chance to I guess reach the public directly and you can see people like now, Wilson Gymnastics, I think he's got one and a half million followers on Instagram. You know, he's, he's done a great job with a, a range of interesting video content. And, you know, I think the athletes who, who embraced social media during the, the lockdowns, some of them have had amazing success in terms of reaching reaching wider audiences. So...
0: It's difficult because there are there are so many, but I think if
1: you've got character and personality and you can stand out um, from the crowd and do something that's original and, and innovative, at least now through social media, you've got the opportunity of doing that and promoting yourself and then attracting other third-party commercial partners who might want to work with you. It's interesting because at the B.O.A., yeah, we have a lot of sponsorship deals and we tend to work with athletes. Well, on every sponsorship deal, we work with athletes. Now, some athlete. The issues we always have are where an athlete's already signed up to a um, a clothing or footwear partner. So, with an Adidas branded business. You'll have someone who's wearing Nike footwear, and they don't want to be pictured in Team GB kit. Our sponsor insists on everyone being pictured in Team GB kit, and you have this clash that starts very early in an athlete's career, and that's a challenge to manage. We had the same thing in tennis, where you know Roger Federer would only. Posing pure Nike stuff, and we might want to promote another sponsor that he's is not his sponsor, and and so you've got that clash all the time going on. Um, you know, but if you're a young athlete and you do want to embrace people like the BOA or your own sport and do stuff with their partners, then the more you make yourself available and interesting. To those partners, then I think there are opportunities. You know, we are quite focused on developing young athletes and, and getting them to embrace the Team GB culture. And we've got some interesting stuff will be happening over the next four years in terms of of bringing young athletes from different sports together to sort of understand the Team GB values. Yeah. The, so, so that, the athletes that participate in that that want to will have opportunities, I think, commercially with someone like the BOA. But equally, if you just want to go it alone, then look at some of these fantastic athletes on on TikTok on social media, and it's not the obvious ones that that resonate. There are; it's, it's more about athletes who've got interesting character or interesting angles yeah. on things or doing interesting stuff from a video perspective. And, and you do have a chance now to reach the public in large numbers, you know, on your own. I mean, someone like Tom Daley has done an amazing job of, of promoting himself. Now he's got his own commercial partners, etc. But he has done an amazing job, and that makes him more attractive. We work with him on various of our sponsors um, when we can, but he's also got his own partners and he, he's you know done an incredible job.
0: Cool. Just a couple more questions for you, Andy. What positive lessons have you learned as a result of the pandemic? And are there any new practices you'll continue into the future? That's yes, tough like, no. cool question. It's hard to think of positive lessons,
1: isn't it? <laughs> the, um, the working thing is fascinating to me because We are, you know, in any organisation, you have people of different ages, different periods in their life, different needs and things. And so, for some people, working at home on video has been fantastic. For others, it's been an absolute nightmare. And so, I think, you know, and and in general, I'm going to do a big generalisation: the guys in their thirties who've got young families would rather be at home in many cases because life's been easier for them. They've not had to commute, they have not all stressed. The guys in their twenties who are just starting out, they want to be in the office and going out after work and doing all that stuff. And, and so for me, I think one of the things I've learned is you've got to be flexible. You've got, you know, we keep our office, although it's locked down in London, et cetera, we've told anyone who needs to go into the office, they can go into the office at any time because we, we have people living in, you know, one bedroom flats with no balcony or something the office is a welcome change. So I think the flexibility of working, I don't think we'll ever go back to five days out of five in the office. But equally, there are certain types of meetings that um, that need you face-to-face. So when you're kicking ideas around, I'm really encouraging people to challenge each other and and, and cut across each other if need to be. You know, there's no harm in that. That doesn't tend to happen on Zoom or Teams. It tends to be one-directional dialogue, you know, very limited um, brainstorming. So I think one of the things we've learned is, yes, the video tools work amazingly. Yes, there are times when people can work really effectively from home, and we've got to trust employees to do that. Um, but equally there are times when we need people in the office to, to work together and challenge together and we've got to come up with a hybrid so have, one positive thing is these video tools have been amazing and have worked but it's not the only solution we do need to come together and keep doing that um, it's, yeah, maybe from an environmental point of view, we're not all jumping on airplanes as much as we did, and maybe that is a positive thing. Um, I think for me, I find that really tough because my whole career has been about meeting people and embracing overseas cultures, you know, going to Japan and China as I would have been um, this month. I miss that because that's part of the excitement of the job. But equally, environmentally, I can see that's probably not a bad thing. And, I, and one of the things that I'm looking at actually because of this is for upcoming Olympics like LA in 28 is actually having a small team that's based in LA rather than a London team traveling out there all the time. Because I think from an environmental point of view, we, are, we do have a mission to reduce our carbon footprint and become carbon neutral. That If you have a team based on the ground in LA, they don't need to be on aeroplanes all the time. There's yeah. a positive there, but for me personally, and maybe this is a generational thing, I love the travel overseas. It's, been, it's always added flavour and variety to my job. Um, but equally, I do acknowledge that you know, we have all got to be sensible about, about the future of the planet, and we, and we need to find a mix there as well.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I don't get to travel much. So I went to Sheffield once; that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, what positive lessons have you learned? As no, that's, I've just done that one. Sorry, that was me. Right. <laughs> what general business professional advice would you give young people just about to start their careers? Yeah,
1: good one. I think yeah. One thing I would say is I empathise and feel sorry for for you guys coming out at this time. Those of you who are graduating, I think it's a very tough climate, and I think you're going to have to work harder to find those opportunities. Um, don't be afraid to network. It would be my first thing. If you, I think the, the generation coming out in this now are much more focused on what they want to do than probably we were. You know, Not everyone gets pushed into being an accountant or whatever, like, which seemed to be the case when we all left university back in the 80s. The, be, so if you know what you want to do, you've then got to find how to network your way into it and that's not just using LinkedIn that is finding people who know people who know people and just trying to get some doors to open and just taking on as much advice as you can and then figuring out exactly where you want to go be prepared to do some work for free to, to get into an industry if that's what you really want to do to get on the ladder um, and you know I'm sure not many, actually most companies, if you say that, will pay you something anyway, but it's it's just shuffling. find people who, who can help you with your career aspirations and just work really hard. I think what we're going to find this year is the general recruitment processes um, that go on from the bigger companies. Yes, they'll be happening, but they'll be probably taking less people in, and therefore you're going to have to look for a greater diversity of career opportunities than you might have to in, in normal times. So yeah. I think it's also... This puts um, a responsibility back on employers as well to make sure that we are helping this generation to find jobs and we don't have a, you know, two or three years that are left out which did certainly happen in certain recessions in the 90s and 2000s, um, that there were gaps where certain years really struggled and, and didn't get on the ladder. And I think that's it's really important that employers don't let that happen and the government needs to help in that regard. But the main lesson I would say, I mean, something like, it's interesting, I get quite a few people asking me, how do I get into the sports industry? And it's a reasonable question. And the one thing I'd say is it's quite a small industry relative to others, and so you do need To find and work hard to find people and talk to people and network to find opportunities that exist because they're not all um, advertised and um, recruited for in the normal places. So you do have to work really hard. And if you say, but be open. And the other thing as well is it's fine to have a career path that ultimately gets you to where you want to go. If I take what what I did and I knew that I wanted to work in the sports industry. Going to Disney helped me in that regard because working in a a media environment for a company that was great on managing media and entertainment brands was always a fantastic step in my career and ultimately helped me get into the sports industry. And I remember doing a, um, a counseling session. We had people who helped your career development and personal development at Disney who were outsiders and saying what I really wanted to do was work in the sports industry. And those guys start helping me help me think about how I could use Disney to ultimately get into the sports industry, and I got lucky actually because um, Disney acquired the Anaheim Angels, which is now the California Angels baseball team and the Mighty Ducks ice hockey team, and I was given their merchandise businesses to run. So uh, that was a nice first step into the world of sports, and, and definitely helped later in the day. But just think, okay, there are steps going into something like consulting and doing a generalist type of career first can help you think about where you want to ultimately end up and then help you target those careers. And and I guess similar with any of the service businesses like banking or accounting, you can you can certainly use those to figure out which industry path or which type of career you want ultimately. But if, if, it's, if it's a niche thing like sports that you want to do, then relentless networking is probably a good, good bit of advice.
0: Brilliant uh, yeah that's really useful advice I think we've just got one last quick one before we end the talk today. sorry if we haven't got right uh, Yeah and then
1: by the way if any of you do want advice and, and you do need support then just do send me an email um, I'm very happy to sort of help and advise you because I know it's a tough time so I may put you on to other people within our organisation but but you know I w- we are here to help as well
0: Thank you and brilliant if people want to send stuff into my email I think most people on the call have it and we can that together. That's really, thank you so much for that. The last one, saying that you were watching, you got to go to all these great events, what's your greatest memory of being a Manchester United game? as at ATP to Olympics? What's the one that stands out for you as the best experience? Yeah. So, I've got three answers to that that's all right. It's a bit self
1: But the, the first one would be Manchester United 1999 Champions League final in Barcelona, which I was lucky to be behind the goal where the, where the two goals went in in the last minute. Um, as a United fan who'd gone through some you know, I started watching Man United in 1970 uh, we didn't win anything until 1977 and and that was an FA Cup and then we won a couple of FA Cups and we finally won the league in 93 but to win the treble in 99 with those goals in the last minute against Bayern Munich in Barcelona was just the most amazing match in atmosphere and the emotional moment I was with my mum and dad my brother and it was, in, it was an incredible time so that was my number one until I w- was I um, was at the Ryder Cup in Medina for the great, the miracle in Medina and that was just the most incredible sporting comeback of all times and it it was brilliant I was literally in the European tour tent over the 18th green when Kaiman put in the last put and what was good about that was not just that it was an amazing for Europe to win but there were a lot of American fans there who are Who weren't very pleasant. And it was quite easy to take a dislike to them. So to actually get one up on them and, um, and, yeah, and and win that was amazing. But just the emotion around that was incredible. So that was up there. And then my final one was at Rio. I said I'm a big sighting fan, but see Bradley Wiggins win the team pursuit yeah. in such amazing style. I had tears rolling down my face watching that. he just think. So, although you know, Bradley Wiggins has, has courted some controversy recently, when he won the tour, I was on the Elysees when he won the Tour de France in the yellow jersey, and Mark Cavendish won that stage. That was amazing, but seeing the um, team pursuit in Rio was just an incredible thing to win another gold medal then. So, those three things are my favourite three sporting moments. I've been lucky. I've been in many Super Bowls, NBA um, playoff finals, etc. I've done some fun things, but you know, the saddest one is I was at that Nadal Federer tennis final in two thousand eight, not eight, I guess. The best final of Wimbledon ever, and I had to leave in the fifth set because I had to go to Sweden for another tennis tournament. <laughs> so I had to get on a plane. So I missed the best bits of the best tennis match at Wimbledon, probably of all time. So that's a, that's a bit of a downer. But anyway, yeah, so I, I've been lucky. So hopefully that inspires somebody to want to work in the sports well.
0: Yeah, well, Andy, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. I think it's been really insightful and it's been brilliant to chat to you personally as well. So many good experiences. Guys, um, who are our next talk is on Tuesday and is with Professor Damien Hughes, who is the co-host of High Performance Podcast and has written some brilliant books on culture and teams and leadership. And he's going to be talking to us about what sport can teach us about leadership. Um, and we'll see you then. Thanks again, Andy, and thanks everyone for joining. Hope you thank have you. a good time. Thanks, everyone. Have a good time.